0: We are taking a look today at one of the truly towering figures of the 20th century, Winston Churchill, who of course was Prime Minister of Great Britain during those crucial years of the Second World War and uh, in so many ways looms large in uh, the the hearts of his countrymen and indeed uh, for people all around the world. I mean, Winston Churchill was as important a symbol as uh, anyone or anything when it came to the Allied effort to fight back against uh, Nazi Germany and our other enemies during the Second World War. Of course, Winston Churchill is a incredibly complex and compelling figure even beyond what he accomplished in leading Britain through the Second World War. And his life was a long one, an eventful one. And although a number of important biographies have been written about him, uh, there probably has not yet been a book written that examined uh, in such close detail uh, a very crucial early chapter in Winston Churchill's life, the period between 1895 and 1900 when uh, young Winston Churchill uh, in his uh, mid-20s, early to mid-20s, was uh, serving as a foreign war correspondent in several different theaters. And uh, it is in these years that Winston Churchill first seems to tap into his gift for uh, for using words. And it's also here that he begins to, for the first time in his life, really taste some great success. It manages to demonstrate some focus and determination. And it's also in these years that uh, Winston Churchill sees, for the first time, the reality of war, sometimes a very brutal reality indeed. All of this is examined in such fascinating fashion by author Simon Reed. His book is called Winston Churchill Reporting, Adventures of a Young War Correspondent, and it is published by Da Capo Press, and I'm delighted to be able to have the next few minutes to speak with Simon Reed about his fascinating book. Simon Reed, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Greg, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very, very happy to be talking with you. Um... Talk for a moment about the challenge of examining uh, a much-examined life like that of Winston Churchill, someone about whom so many superb books have been written. You you right. you list uh, more than a few in your, your acknowledgments. Uh, so, I mean, so so a lot has been written about Churchill. Um, what kind of a challenge does it represent to uh, to, in a sense, say something new, something revelatory? about uh, such a figure.
1: Right. Well, yeah, obviously no shortage of books on the guy. Um, you know, there are like thousands of biographies, it seems, but um, you know, Greg, when we think of Churchill, like you said, we, we tend to think of him as sort of Britain's iconic um, war leader. And I've always been fascinated by what uh, what kind of shaped him into this character that he became this figure that, you know, still stands very large over history, as you said. And you know, when you uh, look at Churchill's life, you know it's it's not short on accomplishment or or adventure. And when you go back and you look at the very things he did, I think the most formative period of his life were the years 1895 to 1900. He spent as this uh, war correspondent. Uh, you know, for several reasons. Uh, you know, like I said, introduced him to the complexities of war. It helped hone his command of the English language, introduced him to the pleasures of cigars and whiskey, which are obviously famous Churchill vices. You know, the challenge in writing a book about a guy like Churchill who's been written about so much, I don't know if you're necessarily going to uh, uncover facts that are, you know, wholly new, that that are completely unknown, but I think when it comes to Churchill, his life is so complex and so multifaceted that I think you can approach it from various angles and you can present him perhaps in a light that many people might not be familiar with you know people who've read biographies on churchill that have covered his life in its entirety are probably aware that churchill uh, you know worked as a war correspondent but they might not be so familiar with sort of the details of the various adventures that he got involved in so the challenge in writing uh, Winston Churchill reporting was to try and present him in a new light and sort of in this book, he's he, he's sort of like the man of action. I mean, he he's a young adventurer. Um, you know the the uh, experiences that he had on these foreign battlefields were both sort of uh, you know horrific, but also um, incredibly exciting. And when I was writing the book, Indiana Jones kept coming to mind, which might <laughs> sound you know strange. But it is. It's, it's almost Winston Churchill in, the, in an Indiana Jones mode. I mean, he took active part in combat. He was in cavalry charges. He was throwing himself into the front line. He was not afraid under enemy fire. And so I think hopefully, you know, even if people have read a lot of Churchill biographies, hopefully if they read Winston Churchill reporting, they'll come away seeing Churchill in a way that they've never really seen him before or you know, think about him in a way they've never thought about him before.
0: Explain what you meant when you say at one point that uh, you didn't write this as a biography or even as a work of history, even though as we read it, I mean, it clearly has elements of both of those things. I mean, and this is not a bit of frippery. I mean, this is this is a a thoroughly researched book and beautifully written, uh, but obviously there were some intentions on, on, in your mind as you wrote it that you did not want it to align easily or neatly with, for instance, previous biographies or, or, or works right. of history. What were you after? What would you call this, if not a biography or a work of history?
1: Uh, well, it's, you're right. It's, um, I, I don't sort of consider it either, although, like you said, it does have elements of both. And obviously, the book, it, it, it's, all, you know, it's, it's a work of nonfiction. It's, it's all true. But to me, it's a, uh, I, I, I describe it as a nonfiction action-adventure story. Um, I've always loved true adventure stories, um, you know, uh, In the Thin Air by John Krakauer, uh, Martin Dugard's Into Africa, you know, sort of stories of people um, sort of, uh, you know, riding this incredible precipice of, like, danger and excitement. And I, I, I've always, I was always looking for a nonfiction story uh, that I could write about in that vein. And I've always uh, been fascinated by Churchill. And uh, I'd finished reading a Churchill biography uh, a couple of years back, and had you know read about his uh, you know the chapter sort of glossed over his experiences as a war correspondent. As a former reporter myself, uh, that kind of fascinated me, and so I started doing a bit more research, and I discovered that it, he wasn't just going off to these foreign battlefields and, and and reporting. He was throwing himself into the action, and I just thought this is a great action adventure story that hasn't really been. Uh, Written about in sort of great detail there 's never really been a deep dive on it and The more I researched it, the more I found that it really was an an action packed story and so um, it, you know when, when you read a biography, a biography is sort of like a chronological uh, detailing of specific events and and sort of analysis and whatnot and i, I didn 't necessarily want it to be uh, i didn 't want it to come across as too academic the book I, I wrote it basically in mind. Of it being a page turner. Hmm. To me, this is a book you, you could, you know, if it had come if it came out in the summer, you could you could take it to the beach and read it on the beach. I wanted it to sort of move along with kind of the velocity of a bullet. So it's right. Very quick. Yeah. And and it you're, and, very you're
0: qu- and you're fortunate that you're writing about events that move as fast as a bullet. I mean, you don't really have to do much contrivance to create it, a book along those lines. I mean, you chose exactly the right subject matter. Uh, the, exactly the right story uh, in which such a book would emerge.
1: Exactly, yeah. You know, the, the uh, sort of campaigns that he was involved in were so, um, you know, they were brutal, they were pretty horrific, um, they were not short on action. The book, it was actually, in a way, it was a very easy book to write because the story tells itself um, so well. And it's of all the books I've written, this is the most fun I've had ever writing one because the material is just so rich and it's so entertaining, and hopefully that does come across when people read it. But the main (laughs) intent was to, you know, write sort of a work of history, but one that's also like a real sort of barnstormer.
0: Right. Uh, (laughs) Before we dig into some details, could you just say a word about – the, the process of researching this book and and uncovering maybe at least a, a bit of information that hasn't been available in in quite such uh such fine detail as as it is in, in this book uh, what what were sort of the most valuable resources to which you turned uh in order to tell this story as richly as you do uh
1: there were two sort of uh resources that proved most valuable in in, in writing the book um, first and foremost are the articles he wrote um, for the various papers. Um, he wrote for The Daily Graphic, which is obviously no longer around that was a, that was a newspaper in London. He wrote for the The Telegraph, which is obviously still around and doing well. and he wrote for um, The Morning Post, um, which is now a defunct publication and so those articles themselves were uh, obviously uh, employed to a great extent in the writing of the book. And um, those were retrieved from the Churchill archives in in Cambridge and also the um, British newspaper archive in the u k and those pro- uh, provide amazing detail on uh, the places and cultures that he experienced and also sort of the um, the combat that he saw and then also his um, personal letters home uh, also uh, were used a lot and they're they're interesting because he you, you see another side of church, you obviously see the side that he, he writes about in the newspaper articles, and then you see him voice his opinion about things in letters home to um, his mother. And I should say that um, when you look at some of the experiences he goes through in this book, you would think most men would write home, say, my God, this is awful, and, and you know, I'm, I'm scared to death out here. He, uh, he really... Um, Enjoyed the adrenaline and the rush of it, and these letters somehow are very fascinating because you see a guy who he acknowledges sort of the horrors that he sees, but on the same token, he's he sort of he's kind of hooked on the uh, on the adrenaline rush. Of being in combat, I think today we could even call him an an adrenaline junkie. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it, it's definitely the his own personal letters and and the articles he wrote were the two primary sources of information for the book.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Simon Reed, and we are talking about his latest book. He has, I think, seven different books before this one. His latest is called Winston Churchill Reporting: Adventures of a Young War Correspondent. This book focuses on the years of 1895 to uh, 1900, uh, when a very young Winston Churchill, he turns 21, I think, uh, fairly early in this this period, uh, finds himself uh, in several different places actually around the world as a war correspondent, and, uh, and in many respects, uh, Simon Reed regards this as the most formative period of uh, the young Churchill's life. Um, One of the things I appreciate, Simon Reed, about your book is the the time that you take to uh, set the perspective. Uh, You don't go into relentless detail, but I think you give us just enough of an idea of Winston Churchill's childhood and what his parents were like to help us understand why Winston Churchill would be so hungry for the adventures uh, that he uh, experienced. Um, Let's just talk about that for a moment. One of the things you say at one point is that his parents, for as distinguished as they were in some respects, left a lot to be desired as parents. How so? Right.
1: They were not sort of warm, loving parents. Uh, In fact, they were very distant. And uh, that's not necessarily uncommon for the era in which Churchill was born. You know, most kids... Uh, in that sort of social strata, back in those days, we were left in the care of a nanny and shipped off to boarding school and whatnot. But Churchill's parents were exceptionally distant. They were, um, they were social animals. Uh, his mother, Lady Randolph Churchill, was uh, you know a hostess on the London party scene, and she was in much demand as a hostess and as a, as a lover. Um, you know she was a very beautiful uh, woman back in the day. And his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, you know, he was a rising star in the uh, Conservative Party. And uh, politics were his passion, um, and he didn't have much time for parenthood, and he certainly didn't have a lot lot of time uh, for Churchill. And I think by today's standards we, we could say that Lord Randolph was uh, emotionally... And verbally abusive as a parent he said he'd say terrible things to uh Churchill and basically dismissed him his entire life as uh as as a failure and so churchill uh, strangely enough adored his father and looked up to his father. his father was a political hero to Churchill, and Churchill really wanted to follow in his footsteps uh but Lord Randolph dies in uh i believe it's december eighteen ninety uh just as uh, Churchill is sort of going into the military. And, uh, you know, Churchill is very upset that his father doesn't live to see him accomplish anything. And I think the relationship between Churchill and his father is it's a defining characteristic of Churchill's uh, sort of entire life, because the father had these expectations uh, that Winston never lived up to. You know, Churchill was kind of a... He was a screwball in school. He never took school very seriously and it drove, drove, his father, drove his father mad. But I think that Churchill sort of spent his entire life trying to live up to his father's failed expectations. You know, Churchill goes into politics because his father was uh, a politician. And, you know, Churchill goes off to these battlefields to try and make a name for himself in a way to sort of live up to what his father wanted him to become, and I think it's telling. Greg, you know, there's a story that um, Lady Mary soames Churchill's youngest daughter, told several years ago. Um, she she recounts a story where Churchill is near the end of his life, and uh, she asks him, you know, uh, Father, you know, you, you've done so much with your life. Is, is there anything that you regret? And Churchill looked at her and apparently said, you know, I, I regret that my father never lived to see me uh, do anything with my life. And I think that's pretty amazing, that a man who can accomplish as much as Winston Churchill did can still have a regret at the end of his life that his father sort of considered him a failure. And Mm. I think think that's um, sort of a vital clue in sort of trying to understand Churchill's motivation and aggressiveness in life.
0: Right. Uh, Not that I want to defend for one moment... uh Uh, Lord Randolph and the way, the really brutal way that he treated his young son. But in fact, you describe uh, young Winston as, at least in some respects, uh, a failure at some of what he attempted. I mean, he was, this is, I mean, when we think about the towering figure whom he eventually became... Uh it's, it's interesting to read, for instance, about what a poor student he was, of how it took three tries for him to gain admittance to the Royal Military College, that he was somebody who lacked focus, who lacked drive, and so on. Uh, I mean, there, there, was, <laughs> there was at least some ostensible reason for Lord Randolph's uh, frustration and displeasure with his young son, even if we uh, <laughs> end up being sort of horrified as, at the way that he acted on it.
1: It's true. I mean, Churchill was, by all accounts, a miserable student. Um, you know, he uh, he he did not pay attention in class. Um, the, the the thing with Churchill is even he, he, Churchill has a reputation for being you know stubborn throughout his entire life. And basically, you know, with Churchill, Churchill did what Churchill wanted to do. You know, if he if he wasn't if he didn't want to do it, he didn't show much interest. And you know, uh, you know, you sit there in school, you're having Latin jammed down your throat, and and mathematics, and all this other stuff. None of that sort of ever really appealed to Churchill. It's interesting that as a student, the two areas that he excelled in are history and uh, and English, Um, and those were his those were his passions. But everything else, he just thought was absolutely pointless. And so a lot, yes, a lot of uh, Lord Randolph's frustration and rage with Winston does stem from Churchill's. Um, miserable performance in school. What's interesting, though, is although he's a terrible student, uh, there are teachers who write letters home to his parents saying, look, your, your son's a total screw-off in class, but he has amazing potential if he can just sit there and apply himself. <laughs> so people did recognize that there's this sort of underlying um, you know, genius, or whatever you want to call it, there in the child. It was just trying to actually access
0: it and and get the boy to apply himself right one of the things i especially appreciate about this early portion of the book is uh the detail with which you describe young winston's love of toy soldiers and i think for a lot of us if the only time we've ever played with toy soldiers is just the little green plastic things um we don't really have much of a sense of what it meant uh A hundred years ago, to play with toy soldiers, and especially if somebody was uh, in in a fairly privileged household and could play with the very best toy soldiers—I mean—and have an enormous collection of them—I mean, you could really uh, do do some amazing things. At one point, you write, um, "Winston's military campaigns waged in miniature." stimulated a powerful and imaginative mind. Just say a quick word about what you are describing here and, uh, and, and the way in which it sort of intriguingly points to what is to come.
1: Sure. Churchill, uh, from a very early age, was fascinated by uh, military uh, matters and you know he's he's born in the Victorian era where uh, you know sort of war at that time is a romantic notion. It's you know two European armies meeting on an open battlefield beneath unfurling flags with cannons booming, and that was something that really appealed to Churchill. And so uh, and also he, his uh, his ancestor uh, you know first Duke of Marlborough was a was a great British military uh, hero. Defeated the French in a series of battles in the uh, early 18th century. And Churchill grew up around all of this. And uh, the earliest surviving letter from Churchill was written when he was seven years old. And he, it's a letter thanking his mother for some toy soldiers and a castle that he received for for Christmas. And Churchill had uh, he amassed this huge collection of lead toy soldiers. Like he said, Greg, today we think of them as like these little plastic green guys. Back then, you know they were much more ornate and, and, and detailed and you know colorful and uh, yeah, they were made of lead He, 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 he uh, built up a collection of fifteen hundred of them, which he would then arrange on uh, the playroom uh, in Blenheim Palace, where he spent uh, a lot of his childhood and he 'd uh, sort of waged these uh, military campaigns and His father came in one day there 's a rare moment of father some bonding if only, it only lasted for a couple of minutes, but Lord Randolph comes into the playroom one day and Churchill has all these soldiers arranged in various formations on the uh, on the nursery floor and and sort of the way Churchill has organized this really impresses Lord Randolph it's the first time he's ever seen his son really focus on something to this extent and so Lord Randolph thinks to himself oh well you know maybe my son he, he he'll be a miserable student but maybe he'll uh, he, he'll excel in, in military matters And so Lord Randolph sort of decides, okay, maybe we need to push him into the Army. And that's what sort of starts Churchill on the the road to uh, sort of a military life.
0: Hmm. And I I will close this portion by saying uh, that uh, when he finally gains admittance to the school and writes a letter home, I mean, very, very proud of what has just happened, his father, you tell us, writes back a letter of blistering denouncement. And accused his son of living an insignificant life and yep. uh, and of course it's so interesting to think about uh, the fact that uh, by the time the twentieth century is over it 's hard to think of anyone whose life was more significant than Winston Churchill uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. I mean <laughs> we're speaking yeah. with Simon Reed about his book, Winston Churchill Reporting Adventures of a young war correspondent so when we are talking about the mid-1890s and Winston Churchill has uh, gained commission to, uh, to join the fourth Hussars, uh, it is actually a very quiet existence, nothing like what he had dreamt of. Uh, just how quiet was it on the battlefront, so to speak, uh, uh, for Winston Churchill? I mean, it helps explain why he was so hungry uh, to seek out adventure in other places.
1: Right. Um, it, it's very quiet. You know, the British Empire at this point, you know, it covers like, uh, covers uh, about a quarter of the globe, and all is relatively quiet across the empire. You know, you have the various little skirmishes that might arise from sort of, presiding over so much of the world's population, but there are no large military um, campaigns. You know, uh, we're, we're talking 1895 here. The last big European war was the Crimean War, which had been a couple of decades before. Um, so there's not a whole lot going on, and the one thing Churchill loathed more than anything was boredom and inactivity. You know, he always had to be occupied doing something, and uh, being in the army, he had expected to sort of go off and, and have some adventures, but that's not the case. He's, he's sitting around in his, in his barracks outside of London, sort of waiting for something to happen and this is sort of the uh this is the thing that kickstarts the war corresponding career because while everything is peaceful with britain's empire the same can't be said for uh spain you know spain is a, a fading uh colonial power and at this time they're trying to uh put into uh, a rebellion in cuba where cubans have risen up against their masters in madrid and Churchill reads accounts of uh, this uprising in, uh, in the London newspapers, and he decides, well, you know what, nothing's going on around here. Uh, there's no prospect of me being sent anywhere. I wonder if I can go to Cuba and sort of check things out there for myself and just see how I do under enemy fire. You know, Churchill was always curious as to how he'd hold up under combat. Um, and so, you know, he wanted to test his bravery. And so he saw Cuba as, as a good starting ground for this. And so he writes his mother a letter uh, in October of uh, 1895, and it says, like, Dear Mama, uh, this may come as a surprise to you, but I've decided to head off to a war zone in the West Indies. And um, his mother uh, is very shocked by this, but she, you know, sort of goes along with it. And because Churchill is Churchill, and his father was Lord Randolph and had all these political connections, um, Churchill is able to use uh family connections to make this happen. You know, family connections in the war office, family connections in the foreign office. But uh you know, with Churchill it's not just a case of going off and and having an adventure in Cuba. He's already thinking at this young age he wants to follow in his father's footsteps and have a political career. If you want to go into politics though you need a public profile. You need a you need a platform you can stand on. And so Churchill sees this as an opportunity to perhaps start building his public persona. Uh, you know, what better way to distinguish yourself than by being, being brave in combat? And so he decides he's going to report on his experiences, and he ends up getting a uh, getting a contract, a commission, with the London Daily Graphic to file five uh, columns from the Cuban uh, battlefront. And so luffy goes in early November 1895 to Cuba with a stop-off in New York, And that's basically the start of what turns into sort of a five-year adventure on these various
0: battles. (laughs) You write at one point, peace was not conducive to young Churchill's longing for adventure. And at another point, you write, I love this line, battle was a worthy alternative to boredom, which to Churchill was the greatest sin. (laughs) And of course, what ensues is anything but boring. Uh, Just say a word about uh, the unlikeliness of this assignment. I mean, what kind of strings had to be pulled in order for this to be possible, for, uh, for, for Churchill to be given this assignment?
1: Right. Uh, quite a few strings had to be pulled. First, the war office had to sign off on it because, you know, Britain had no involvement in the uh, conflict in Cuba. It was strictly between Spain and, uh, and you know, the Cubans. And so, uh, first of all, permission had to be granted by the war office, which was granted. And then permission had to be granted by the foreign office, um, you know, uh, by the ambassador to, to uh, Spain. He, um, he gave his approval. And then there had to be strings pulled uh, in Cuba. You know, uh, the Cuban military had to sign off on letting uh, a young British officer um, show up and, uh, you know, report on the battles. And so diplomatic strings were pulled. And um, Cuba, you know, the Cuban officials said, sure, you know, he, he can come on over. The, the key player in all of this in getting all of this done wasn't Churchill himself. It was Churchill's mother, Lady Randolph. Um, she was a woman, like we sort of alluded to earlier, she was a woman of uh, very considerable uh, charm, and she knew how to flatter men <laughs> in, in positions of power. Um, she had a lot of admirers, and this really sort of worked out to Churchill's benefit. And it's sort of interesting that when Churchill was a child, Lady Randolph was a very distant parent. But as Churchill got older, she became much more involved in his life. And it's because of her, really, that he's able to go off to a lot of these places that he goes off to as a war correspondent, because she's the one who sort of charms and cajoles people into letting Churchill have his way. And it's almost as if she was making up for the years of uh, neglect from Churchill's childhood, but she really does become his biggest champion. Mm-hmm.
0: You tell us that the uh, journey across the sea was uh, not exactly a pleasure crew. You say by the end, <laughs> Churchill was ready to leap overboard. <laughs> I'm, glad you, yes. I'm glad you take a, 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 a couple of pages to describe actually sort of the front end of this adventure in which he first stops off in New York City, if I'm not mistaken.
1: He stops off in New York City. He's meant to be there for just a couple of days, but he ends up staying a uh, a week. And he's uh, he's hosted by a local politician, burt Cochran, who is a big early uh, influence on uh, on Churchill's life. Cochran, he's sort of forgotten now, but he was a great orator, you know, fantastic public speaker. And he uh, he sort of treated Churchill like a son. It's rumored that Cochran and uh, Churchill's mother had had an affair at some point. Um, in the past, and uh, Lady Randolph had written to Cochrane saying, will you host Winston when he's in New York? And Cochran had agreed to do it. And uh, Cochran takes uh, Churchill all around uh, New York, introduces him to New York High Society. He has dinner with the Vanderbilts. It's a very, um, you know, it's a very elegant week spent in a uh, very uh, elite company. And Churchill was amazed. At New York, it, uh, it sort of blew his mind. You know, London at the time was sort of the capital of the world, but New York just had this amazing energy to itself, and he was fascinated by Americans. He, he sort of he found them kind of crude and vulgar, in a lot of ways, but he also found them to be a very positive and uplifting type of people. And it fascinated him, like public transport in, in New York fascinated him, where you could you, you could get on a on a boat or a carriage, and you'd have the, the lower and upper classes sitting side by side, whereas in London you just you know there were very clear social uh, class distinctions. You didn't see that, and so New York was uh, a completely different world to him. The one thing that he he could not stand about America was the currency. He thought paper money was uh, was absolutely awful, um, but <laughs> he thought it was a very crude thing. And he paid a uh, I think he pays. I don't know what he say he pays like a dollar or something to cross the uh, Brooklyn Bridge, and he, he's embarrassed handing a paper note over to the um, to the toll taker. Um, but that's really his only his only complaint. He he also saw America. He he viewed America on this first trip kind of as a as a brash young child who doesn't really have any table manners and and no tradition. He he, he goes at one point to a uh, murder trial in New York, and he, he sits there in the courtroom. And he's, he's amazed to see that none of the lawyers or judges sit there wearing, you know, long black gowns and powdered wigs like they do uh, in the UK. And he just couldn't believe that uh, this up-and-coming country could be so devoid of tradition. But there was something about America that he loved. His, his mother was American. so He's half-American, so he had, he sort of had uh, an affinity for the country already programmed into his DNA. But, uh, yeah, his, his adventures in New York, it, it gave rise to a, a lifelong love affair mm. uh, of, uh, of the country.
0: Well, we are uh, finally getting to the real heart and soul of the book, of course, which is uh, this adventure finally beginning. And it is, uh, as you were saying, uh, uh, an adventure that has uh, several different chapters uh, beginning with uh, this uh, this conflict in, in, in Cuba. Uh, just remind our listeners about what that conflict was about? You've already mentioned the fact that it was not a conflict in which Britain was directly involved at all.
1: Right. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was uh, basically the Cuban War for Independence. Cubans had risen up against uh, their colonial masters in Madrid. You know, Cuba was a was a nation rich in natural resources. You know, in in, uh, in sugar and in in tobacco. Um, and uh, Cuba or Spain was. Uh, Placing very heavy taxes on Cuban, basically taxing um, the, Cuba, the Cuban nation to death, and uh, you know Cubans had had enough and sort of risen up in in rebellion and so Churchill had uh, gone over there, um, he was embedded with um, spanish uh, spanish troops you know he 'd gotten permission of uh, Spanish authorities in in Cuba, and so he was embedded with Spanish troops, and he was attached to a Spanish column basically that was working its way through the Cuban jungle. Uh, giving supplies to the garrisons in the various Cuban villages dotted across the island. And so this is his first foray, um, sort of into combat, and he, he, this is where he comes under fire for the first time.
0: I believe it is during this conflict that he uh, writes about a certain battle called the Battle of La Reforma. Am I remembering that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and... Um, it, 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 with with the Cuban campaign, you know, he didn't really see anything that that rises above more than a than a skirmish. You know, what he sees is mostly guerrilla warfare, which leaves a very bad taste in his mouth. You know, the Cubans would would dart out of the jungle, fire at the Spanish column Churchill was a part of, and then retreat back into the vegetation. To Churchill, that was a very cowardly way of uh, of fighting. But sort of the campaign culminates in this battle of uh, La Reforma, where. Um, the sort of the Spanish uh troops Churchill is attached with finally come face to face with a Cuban army. And the battle doesn't last very long and it's sort of anticlimactic in Churchill's um point of view and the Spanish win and force the Cubans back into the jungle. Um and then the Spanish don't even, you know, take off after them. They kind of mill around in Churchill uh we sort of see a, a hint of Churchill the future war leader here. Churchill is just uh, disgusted by this he goes you know we've traipsed through the jungle for a week in the most horrendous conditions we finally come face to face with the enemy you, you defeat them and, and but you don't go after them to finish the job and you know churchill when it came to military matters was very aggressive right. and uh and so the battle of sort so the big climactic scene of his cuban adventure although it leaves a lot to be desired in his mind and uh he leaves you know, not thinking very highly of uh, the Cuban soldiers, and, but also uh, he leaves with some criticism of the way uh, the Spaniards conduct the war, too.
0: This is one of the excerpts from his actual writing that I took the time to write down just because I, th- I thought it was an intriguing glimpse into uh, the man he was going to become, as you, as you say, but also an example of, of how already at this young age he writes very, very well. He writes at one point, this is Winston Churchill's words, "...it seems a strange and unaccountable thing." That a force after making such vigorous marches, showing such energy in finding the enemy, and displaying such steadiness in attacking him, should deliberately sacrifice all that these efforts had gained. Um, I mean, that, that, I that sums it well. Old. Yeah, right. I mean, it sums it up extraordinarily well. And you remind us that it's right around his 21st birthday that for the first time he has bullets (laughs) whirling through the air. I mean, and suddenly war is not about toy soldiers anymore. Uh, War is is very, very real, although it it is not as dramatic as he will experience in some of the later chapters. But nevertheless, this is his first taste of the reality of war.
1: It is. It is, and he he actually comes under enemy fire on the morning of his twenty first birthday he uh He gets up and he mounts his horse, and as the Spanish column is moving out, Cuban rebels emerge from the undergrowth at the rear of the column and start firing and They are several yards away from where Churchill is you know they're quite they're they're quite a ways down the line from Churchill's spot, but you know it it's enough to sort of uh kind of give Churchill pause and realize that, oh my god, you know I could actually get killed or injured here, and suddenly, like you said it's it's not a game anymore. There's a real risk to it, but it it sort of stokes his appetite for more. Hmm.
0: Some of these first columns, if I remember correctly, from Cuba are published, but without Churchill's name attached to them, which is Mm -hmm. very, very frustrating and offensive to him. And that's one of the reasons why he sets about to write a book, which ends up being well uh, received, uh, positively uh, reviewed for the most part. And you... Uh, you tell us that never before had Churchill been praised in such fashion.
1: Right. He actually writes a book following his uh, following a campaign. He covers on the northwest frontier of British India, which is today sort of the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And uh, the fighting that he saw there was very fierce. Uh, British soldiers were in a camp. British and Indian soldiers were in a campaign against uh, the areas Pashtun. Tribesmen, which are uh, the ancestors of today's Taliban, and just as you know, uh, sort of uh, you know, the fighting uh, in that region in modern times is fierce. Uh, So it was very fierce um, back then. And Churchill sees a lot of horrible things um, on that campaign. But when he finishes the campaign, he he finds his the articles that he's written in the Daily Telegraph have all been published anonymously, which drives him absolutely nuts because he's putting life and limb, you know, he's risking his life. Uh, for for publicity, and so what he decides to do is he decides to write a book, and he discovers that there's another guy writing the book about the same campaign, at the exact same time, and so he really applies himself hard. He starts writing this book in uh, in October of uh, 1897, and he, in two months, it, it, in just under eight weeks, he writes an 85,000 word manuscript. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Winston Churchill reporting, that book's about 85,000, 90,000 words. Uh, you know, that took me a year to write. So, yeah. <laughs> he can, you know, he, he really um, pushed himself uh, to the breaking point. You tell and, us, never uh, had
0: he known such intense focus.
1: <laughs> he He never had. He was writing up to eight hours a day, you know, sitting in his barracks in India, his hand cramping. Uh, he really um, it was a, a, a real accomplishment. And when the book does come out the following year, it receives, you know, very high praise. Um, it's, uh, you know, the critics all love it. Uh, he even receives praise from the British Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury at the time, who says it's wonderful. And it so establishes Churchill as a rising literary star.
0: Um, you do recount how uh, Winston Churchill saw some terrible things during this period uh and and sometimes it was the 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 horrific bloodshed of of the battle itself and uh and on more than one occasion he also witnessed barbaric behavior uh that uh, that really in your words left him uh easily sh- uh, deeply shaken even though he was not a man Easily shaken by 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 much of anything, but he saw some some truly terrible things, um, and uh, and and this had to have a, a deep impact upon him. Just say a word about that.
1: It did. Uh, you know, he, he when he goes to the Northwest Frontier in eighteen ninety seven, um, you know, Cuba is a light skirmish. The Northwest Frontier is really a savage battle. The fighting there was horrific, and he does he sees a lot. The uh, tribesmen that the uh, British and Indian troops were up against were. Incredibly fierce warriors, incredibly brave in combat. They um, they they were not timid at all, and uh, they were just savage warriors. And so Churchill, in the fighting, the fighting is very you know it's almost hand to hand. It's extremely brutal. Churchill sees men ripped apart with spears and swords. Um, he sees a wounded uh, Indian soldier subbed into an incinerator. Uh, he just he see things that really um, leave a mark and. He, he, writes, he writes an interesting letter home to his mother that says, I, I've seen things that will, will stay with me forever. But he also says that he's still having uh, an amazing time because of the adventure. And this is where you see sort of the complex view on war, Churchill's complex view on war takes shape. He loved the complexity and scope of war, and he loved the uh, sort of uh, adrenaline rush of, of combat, but he hated the human toll. He hated he hated the blood cost of war, and it created a very sort of powerful divide in his personality. And so, from that point on, he always has a loathing for uh, sort of ineptitude in the higher ranks. He can't stand generals who make decisions that cost um, needless lives, and that's something that sticks with him uh, forever. And as a war correspondent, he does not shy away from criticizing generals in print who make stupid decisions. But it was you know people dismiss Churchill as a warmonger, you know his critics tend to, um, but that wasn 't the case because he did you know there are times in the book where he you know he stands crying over the graves of fallen uh, fallen soldiers, and so he 's very much aware of war 's human cost, and he 's aware of that from a from a very early age
0: hmm. and it 's interesting that he is not afraid to uh, to write frankly. Uh, about his own government or about uh, certain decisions of the military. I mean, if, if all of this had been a purely self-serving venture, uh, he probably would have not uh, spoken as frankly and honestly as he did in his writing.
1: Exactly. Uh, you, Greg, you, just, you you nailed a really important point. Uh, you know, Churchill is going off to these war zones to try and build a, a public platform for himself through, through journalism. But Churchill... Uh, Churchill was a guy of great uh, sort of moral courage. He never said anything to gain popularity. He never said anything for his own political advancement. He only said what he believed to be right, even if it was wrong, and it proved unpopular. He's still stuck by it. Um, we certainly see that uh during the 1930s when he's you know speaking out against appeasement and trying to warn the british public about the rise of nazi germany you know that that cost him hugely in terms of his political career to begin with um, but we also see that as as a young man where he puts in the print you know these scathing indictments of uh you know of generals who make foolish decisions you know he he and many times he criticizes the government that he wants to be a part of and so uh churchill was he, he was a you know, he was a man of his his word, he was a man of very strong beliefs. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And, you know, that was the case pretty much through his entire life. But we definitely see it emerge, um, you know, when he is on these foreign battlefields. Hmm.
0: I think we made brief mention of it earlier, but we should just for a second uh, talk about the fact that uh, during one of these campaigns, I believe it's when he's in South Africa, uh, he is captured. And uh, he is he is imprisoned for a good month before he manages to escape, and then has a, a whole series of adventures uh, as a fugitive. Uh, and yeah. this makes for some of the most in, in, engrossing stuff in your book.
1: Yeah, he is. Uh, he goes off to uh, South Africa to cover the Second Boer War, which is a war between Britain and sort of Dutch settlers um, on uh, on the Cape, and the war was fought I mean, primarily over access to gold and other resources in the in the region. It, it was a very it was a brutal war. It so it's uh it 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 started in 1899. It can almost be seen as a as a prologue to sort of the bloodshed and carnage of the western front World War 1. Uh you know the British are up against the modern enemy with modern weapons and uh it, it, it's a bloody affair. But Churchill he he's taken prisoner. He goes there as a correspondent for the Morning Post. He's on a uh, he's on an armored train that's reconnoitering some enemy territory and and the train is shelled by, um, by the enemy and is derailed, and uh, there's uh, a lot of chaos when the train is derailed. Churchill comes under a heavy fire, but he helps get the train back on the track. Um, this is borne out in uh, testimony from numerous witnesses. He helps get the train back on the track and helps a lot of men get away, but Churchill himself is taken prisoner, and he's, uh, he's held for uh, quite a while in, uh, in Pretoria, in South Africa, and uh, he finally, one night, uh, escapes by climbing over a wall. And um, he now has this uh, you know, hundreds-of-miles march through enemy territory to try and get back to the British lines. And he, he does this by traveling at night, hopping aboard trains, um, you know, sleeping in railway carriages. He finally comes to a mine, um, a mining operation that's run by uh, a British guy who takes Churchill in. Uh, and Churchill lives for three days underground in a mine, being, you know, scurried over by rats and everything else is, is, is an awful experience. And then he smuggled into neutral territory aboard a, uh, aboard a train. And then from there he makes his way back to uh, the British lines to rejoin the fight. But it was, it was that adventure, because while he's on the run, he's still writing articles about it. <laughs> he's, he's, he's detailing his escape as it's happening. Um, he leaves out some details because he doesn't want people to get, uh, he doesn't want retribution against the people who've helped him. But uh, when he finally returns to British lines, um, he's hailed as as a hero. And when his articles are published back in the U.K., he becomes a national hero back home. And that's when we see Winston Churchill, the young war correspondent, suddenly become Winston Churchill, a national figure.
0: Hmm. And, of course, uh, in 1900, he enters Parliament and... Uh history begins to be made at one point in your book you see say, say what 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 forces you pose this question what forces shaped him into the man he became he was after all 65 years old when he ascended to number 10 downing street with a life behind him not short on accomplishment and of course your book helps us understand this very very crucial period early in the life of winston churchill which helped equip him to be uh, the world-shaking figure that he was. The book, again, is called Winston Churchill Reporting, Adventures of a Young War Correspondent, published by Dacapo Press. Simon Reed, congratulations on a superb book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. This has been a real pleasure.
1: Greg, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: All right, there we go. I...
1: Greg, I, I got to tell you, I've, I've done uh, a lot of interviews for for, for this book. I, I, I can tell you, in all sincerity, yours—you asked the best questions. That was the best <laughs> oh, interview. Uh, well, I, thank you so much. That was that was great.
0: Oh uh, well, I'm glad you think so. I sure loved the book, and so I'm, I'm, it makes me doubly happy to hear you uh, say that you enjoyed the interview. I I, I did too. I really really did. So. Thank
1: you so much. Um, uh, any any idea when this might air?
0: This is going to air a week from today. A week okay, from great. today, and uh, and right. from that point uh, at, at at that point, once it airs, uh, you know there there would be a link available to you for uh, for you to hear it, of course, or to link to it if you like, w- w- whatever yeah, whatever's great. helpful to you. So great, well. excellent.
1: Well, Greg, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank well, you very good. Much.
0: I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. Best wishes to you. Thanks, right. Greg. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.